Good morning. Hey, well, I'm so thankful to be with you guys. If you don't know me, my name is Johnny Artavanis. Uh, my wife Katie is somewhere with our baby Lily. As Wayne said, I am so grateful. Uh, I'm humbled and I'm excited. I'd love to thank the rest of the elders just for uh, their kindness to me as we've kind of navigated this, my wife and I. And I want to thank you guys. I'm just so excited to get to know you over the coming years. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm thankful. We will be moving here in June and then I'll kind of end of June. And then Katie, my wife is due with the baby first week of August. And then right after that, we'll launch kind of into um, kind of moving forward with the teaching series. I'd love to thank Wayne in particular and Michael for their faithfulness over the last number of years. And I'm grateful to be with you. But because of time, there's three services. I want us to consider uh, the events that we celebrate today. But I, I wanted to take a moment and say, Thank you. Uh, can I pray for us once more and then we'll dive into God's word. God, we are so grateful for the gift of your word. We're thankful that in a world of lies and confusion, we have the living words of God. So Lord, would you please open our eyes that we may behold the wonderful things that are within your word. We ask that your spirit would guide us and enable us to both understand and apply and form and shape us into the image of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful that you love us and that we worship a risen Savior. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, hey, would you take your copy of God's word and would you turn with me to Luke chapter 24, Luke 24. And I want to take you to a post-resurrection narrative this morning, a post-resurrection narrative. And here in Luke 24, we find ourselves at a scene on the afternoon of Easter Sunday. On Friday, Jesus had been crucified and Friday afternoon, evening. And now this is Sunday afternoon. Jesus is walking and as he is walking, he comes along two other companions who had likely witnessed the events of Jesus's crucifixion. And now they are walking the seven mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They had been in Jerusalem for the Passover and now they are walking the two and a half hour walk home to Emmaus. And we read in Luke 24 verses 13 through 24, read with me. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. Pause real quick for a moment. No one expected a resurrection. Jesus was crucified and the disciples weren't gathered and going, three, two, one. No, they were mourning. They were hiding. No one was expecting this. These are followers of Jesus. Church history tells us that Cleopas, who we're going to read about in the next verse, was likely the brother of Joseph, Jesus' father. So this is likely Jesus's uncle. And they're looking sad. They're despondent. They're despairing because no one expected a resurrection, even though Jesus had said multiple times, I must go die. And after three days, I will rise. So here are these two companions. They're mourning the loss of the Messiah. Verse 17, he said, what are you, these things that you're exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? And unaware of the things which have happened here in these days. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, 
who is a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. And now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women amongst us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him, they did not see. Jesus joins the conversation of a man named Cleopas and his companion. Their hopes had collapsed like a house of cards. Their spirits are scraping the ground. Why? Well, simple, because the one they thought who was the Messiah, who was going to come and deliver them from the tyranny and reign of Rome, the long-awaited Messiah had died. And above his cross was a mocking description, King of the Jews. They were expecting triumph, and here they are walking, hanging their heads in the aftermath of great tragedy. They had even heard that this man was raised from the dead, but this was likely the hysterical account of two delusional women, nothing to be trusted. The tomb was empty, but Jesus, we didn't find. Someone had likely stolen his body. And so when Jesus died, their hopes died with him. But the savior of the world, he joins them in their conversation and he joins them in their journey and he begins to discuss with them. And it says in verse 16, they don't know it's him, meaning that in all these post-resurrection accounts, they're prevented from recognizing the Messiah until the Messiah makes himself known to them. Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener until Jesus discloses himself to her. But Jesus comes up to them and he asks them an interesting question in verse 17. He says, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? What are you talking about? Is Jesus' question. Now, what's interesting to you about this? Well, it's interesting to me that Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. It says in Psalm 139, he knows every hidden nook and cranny of every hidden heart. He's omniscient. He knows all things. And yet repeatedly with his disciples and even here with these two companions, he asks them questions. And the question is, why? Why does the one who knows all things ask questions? Well, because questions solicit self-examination and they force people to articulate and crystallize their own dilemma. They have to begin to process. And what they process is, Jesus, we, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the one that would come and, and free us from the reign of Rome. We thought he was the long-awaited king. But he was slaughtered like an animal. And Jesus now has enabled them to express their own dilemma. Now the question is, how does Jesus respond to these two melancholy men And we find the answer in verse 25 if we keep reading. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. How does Jesus respond to these two dudes? These are guys that were 
his disciples. They followed him. They actually believed he was the Messiah. They're not amongst the shrieking crowd crying, crucify him, crucifying, crucify him. They were the ones thinking, this is, this is him. So how does Jesus respond to him? Well, what's interesting to me is he doesn't go, ta-da, it's me. Put your finger right here. That's where they thrust the nails. He doesn't say, hey, here's where they cast the spear. Look at my feet. No, he does what? He first and foremost explains to them the grand narrative of scripture. The instrument Jesus employs to minister to their melancholy hearts is first and foremost the word of God. And far from arriving at the scene and unhitching their faith from the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't reveal himself to a single person until he had sufficiently connected the dots that every single thing in scripture, Moses and the prophets, just means every single book points to one person and it points to Jesus Christ. Now a question. If on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus shows up and preaches a sermon that all of the Old Testament points to a risen Savior. Is that not our Bible study this morning? I mean, that Jesus is, Jesus is going to preach the same sermon through his living word to us today. He, he wants you to understand this. He wants his disciples to understand something about the scripture pointing to a person and a risen Christ. Maybe you're visiting this morning. I'd love, I'd just love to welcome you here. Maybe you don't go to church routinely. I'd love to just tell you something about the scripture. It's 66 books written on three continents and in three languages over a period of 1,600 years, but it all points to one person, the person of Jesus Christ. The answer that you would likely solicit from a child if you asked them, what's the point of scripture would be what? Jesus. And you would maybe laugh and chuckle thinking, oh, what a simple answer, but that couldn't be any more accurate. We sometimes miss the forest from the trees, but from Genesis through Revelation, it points to one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know the Savior this morning, but you're, you're unsure also what to trust in a world of lies, and Jesus is going to show these two men that they can absolutely bank their life upon the rock-hard reliability of God's word. And although we could spend a number of you know, uh, hours looking at the themes that maybe Jesus would have taken them. Today, I want to just explore three themes with you that would have likely anchored Jesus's mobile Bible study as he walked with the two companions on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Three themes for you this morning. The first of which is that there is in the Old Testament, the anticipation of a coming king, a coming king, number one. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, and you can keep your finger in Luke 24. Look with me to Genesis, and we'll look at chapter three. Now, in Genesis chapter one, God created the entire world, and everything he creates, he says, is good. And then he creates man, and he creates woman in his own image, and he says that it is tov miod. It's very good. God was pleased with his creation. He gave Adam and Eve very cool job descriptions. Rule over creation. I mean, that's a sweet job. What do you do? I rule. Now he says, rule over the land, be fruitful and multiply. Everything here is for your enjoyment. You shall eat of any tree in the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. But in Genesis chapter three, Satan comes and Satan does what Satan does best. He doesn't deny the word of God. He does what? 
He distorts the word of God. He confuses the word of God. And he asks a question. Did God really say? Before this moment in history, there were only answers. But the first question asked in human history is a question that casts doubt on the reliability and the trustworthiness of God's word. Satan operates no different today. Did God really say? So Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit. And it says immediately they recognize their nakedness and they ushered in sin and shame and darkness and depravity into the world. Now God had told them that in the moment that they eat of this tree, they would surely die. But in Genesis 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 14, we read this. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Embedded within these words of doom is mankind's only hope. You're just imagining with me, if I could go anywhere in scripture, if I could time travel, this conversation Jesus is having with the two men on the road to Emmaus is the conversation I would visit because he's showing them the thrust of scripture. And he would have taken them to the beginning of their Bibles. And here it says that the seed is coming and this passage indicates that a male member of the human race will deliver a final and fatal blow to the serpent. And in the process, he will be bruised but he will crush the serpent. Now, what basic truths can you derive about the coming Messiah from page three of your Bibles? Well, simple. He will have a supernatural birth. It says that he is the seed of the woman, not of the man. So the virgin birth is implied from page three of the Bible. Secondly, he will be a supernatural being. He will crush the serpent who is himself a supernatural being. So deity is implied. But third, he will also be man. He is the seed of the woman. He is both God and he is also what? Man. The one who is going to come, who will reverse the curse, is a God-man. Now at the end of chapter three of your Bible, that's all we know. But if you want to understand the Old Testament, it functions like this, a, a funnel, if you will, where it's wide at the top and then becomes progressively narrow until you reach the bottom and reaches the only person that could possibly fulfill all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah, that being Jesus Christ. So in Genesis 3, a seed is coming, but then this narrative is going to be traced through the entire Old Testament. And Jesus wants you this morning to understand this. This is a little heady. No, no, this is Jesus's resurrection sermon. He wants you to know all of scripture points to me. And so he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, what do we read in Moses? Well, it says in Genesis 3, this happens. And then in Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and he says what? He says, you will, many nations will come from you. Meaning that your descendants will be the recipients of the blessing that Adam and Eve forfeited. Now I want you to watch this theme. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham again, kings will come from you. Meaning that the coming seed is a coming king who will reign, conquer, and crush death. Abraham has a son and his name is what? Isaac. God will tell Isaac in Genesis 26, kings will come from you. Isaac has two sons. Their names are Esau and 
or yeah, Jacob. And God tells Jacob in Genesis 35, kings will come from you. Now Jacob has a lot of boys. Now, which of Jacob's sons are the most popular in your Bible? Joseph, right? Joseph's story takes up the lion's share of the Genesis narrative. So you would think that if God is going to bless one line, it would be Joseph's line. But the king that's coming is not going to come from Joseph, the most popular, nor from Reuben, the oldest. In Genesis 49, we read, the scepter will not depart from, what tribe, anybody know? Judah. The funnel's being narrowed. A king is coming. He's coming from Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Now, the greatest descendant of Judah in the Old Testament is King David, right? So in part, this prophecy is fulfilled in David, but David would sin greatly. And like everyone else before him, he would go the way of all the earth and he would what? Die. And so the question is, where is this greater king? Now, after King David, the Old Testament, if you want to understand the books of Kings and Chronicles, it's a grocery list of kings, and the most common description of those kings is they did what was blank in the sight of the Lord. What's that word? Evil. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Old Testament is not just a bunch of commandments. It's a story. Where is the king? Where is the king? Where is the Messiah? I was thinking about it. I maybe even shared this with you before. I'll never forget being in Israel playing chess with a guy at a coffee shop, speaking with a Jewish man and watching these guys kind of just roll around in a Jeep, holding on to the bar with their one hand and with another, they have a megaphone. And I just hear him saying Mashiach, and I, I knew that word to be the Messiah, but they were saying a bunch of other things. And I asked the man, what are they saying? And they're, I mean, they're crying. They're, they're screaming in megaphones. What are they saying? Uh, they're just saying over and over again, the same thing. Yeah, what are they saying? Where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? Where is the Messiah? The Old Testament is basically just begging that one question. Where is this king who's going to reverse the curse, crush death, free us from sin? The prophets would pick up the same theme. And they would then say, rejoice, your king is coming. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, the foal of a donkey. We don't read that in Matthew's gospel. We read that 500 years before the event we celebrated last week called Palm Sunday. That the king is coming, and guess what about this king? Well, he's not coming with pomp and circumstance. He's not riding in on a chariot. He's not even on a battle horse. He's not even on a donkey. He's on what? The foal of a donkey. You know what a foal of a donkey is? Well, I didn't before I Googled it. The foal of a donkey is a baby donkey. And so the king of glory comes into town. Hee-haw, hee-haw. And this is the way you welcome the Messiah. And Jesus looks at the travelers and he looks at you through his word and he says, are you tracking? The Old Testament points to one person and he is a great king. But not only that, he would have, back in Genesis 3, shown them that not only does the Old Testament anticipate a greater king, it also anticipates a coming sacrifice. In Genesis 3, it says that Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness, and it says they ran. They tried to cover their bodies, but they couldn't cover their guilt. They tried to suppress shame, but the more you suppress shame, the louder its voice becomes in your conscience. 
And what happens in that moment is that Genesis, it says in 321, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here we see a shadow of really what we'll, we'll see the rest of the Old Testament. Now, question, I want you to think with me. Who, would, who was supposed to die when Adam and Eve sinned? Easy answer, Adam and Eve. But do they die? No, it says that someone else or something else dies and God clothes them, covers them with the skin of that animal. It's the first type of sacrifice we see in the Bible. And the rest of the Old Testament was a visible drama playing out before the eyes of the people of God. Sin results in death. Sin must be punished. Now, in Exodus, and maybe you're new to the church entirely, and, and this is where this is a, a flyover, but I want you to understand the, the scripture. In Exodus, if, if you've seen Prince of Egypt, this often gets like the, the main thrust of the Exodus story, the plays, God delivers his people, but the primary emphasis of the book of Exodus is about what? The tabernacle. God dwelling with his people. Moses talked with God face to face. And God says, I don't want to dwell over my people. I want to dwell amongst my people. So construct for me a tabernacle. Now, there's a great problem at the end of Exodus. There's 50 chapters regarding the instructions for the tabernacle. There's two chapters on how God made the entire world. So this matters. So at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is ready. And then what happens? Moses, the most righteous, godly man on planet earth, goes to the tabernacle and it says what? He could not enter. He could not approach God. Now the question is, if the most righteous, godly man on earth cannot approach God, then who on earth possibly can? What's the answer? The book of Leviticus. The only way we will see that someone can possibly be made right with God is through the sacrificial system. And who can approach God? Well, the answer is a priest covered by the blood of a substitute himself who goes to meet God one day a year. That's Leviticus. Now, in the Old Testament, these sacrifices were offered over and over and over again. Now, we had the kids up here this morning and their answers are always so tender and so sweet. Now, what's interesting is about 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, these little kids would have understood something very fundamental about God. And it would have been that the only way you approach God is through the blood of a substitute because young boys would have been required to go and offer sacrifices with their fathers. They would have seen this playing out before their eyes. They would not just have observed it from a distance. They would literally have been required to lean on the substitute dying in their place for their sin. Why? Well, first of all, Leviticus says, for maximum drainage of blood. This wasn't like, oh, God has a mild distaste in sin. God abhors sin. He hates sin. And in order that every single boy and girl, every single Ben and Jacob would have understood, God doesn't turn a blind eye to wickedness. He hates sin and it must be punished. And there is no reconciliation with your creator apart from the blood of a sacrifice. Now, they would have leaned on the animal for three reasons. One, it was a confession of guilt, meaning that I'm laying my hands on the sacrifice because I am guilty. I'm not just mildly guilty. I'm guilty to the point of, I deserve death. 
Not only that, they would have also leaned on the sacrifice physically as a demonstration of a spiritual reality, meaning that I am fully reliant upon the efficacy of a substitute in order that I might live. And third, it would have symbolized something else, the element of transference or imputation, meaning that when I lay my hand on this, on this sacrifice and I lean on it, the sin is being transferred to the lamb. Sin cannot be in two places at once, so God's wrath would be poured out on the substitute and the sinner would live. God's wrath would be poured out on the substitute and the sinner would live. This happened over and over and over and over again. And boys would have asked their dads their whole life, Dad, how many more? Is it finished? Are we done? How many more sacrifices? And the dad would have responded, it is not finished. It is not finished. And the second they walked away from the altar of sacrifice, another sacrifice would be due because they would prove who they are in their DNA, that being a sinner. And so the insufficiency of the system left them begging and crying out, where is the better sacrifice? Where is the final lamb? The Hebrew title for the greatest day of sacrifice, which would happen one day a year, is Yom Kippur. And Kippur literally means to cover. This is a fitting title because all of the sacrifices that we've discussed briefly just now, they don't actually remove sin. It's a temporary covering for sin that points forward to the ultimate sacrifice. We're still on the road with these despairing travelers, right? Jesus, they don't know it's Jesus, so he's just explaining to them the Old Testament. And so he says, there's a need for a coming king. And they would have understood this. There's a need for a better sacrifice. They would have understood this. And maybe they're on mile five of their journey. And he wants to show them one other theme. That being that there is a need for an empty grave. Would you turn with me to Psalm 16? We live in a sin-cursed world. And we need someone who would reverse the curse. And the only one who can reverse the curse is someone who would come and conquer death. And so in Psalm 16, we read this. And we'll connect the dots in just a moment here. In verse 10, David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay you will make known to me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In Isaiah 53, Daniel 12, Psalm 16, many other passages, there is the anticipation of one who would come and rise from the grave. The Christian's hope is empty if the tomb is not empty and the Old Testament prophesies regarding a certain reality. We need someone who will break the power of sin and death. And the only one that can do that is someone who rises from the dead himself. So this coming king, this coming sacrifice is a grave destroyer. Now, as maybe they saw their village from a distance, Jesus walks with these two guys and maybe he begins to connect the dots for them. They still don't know it's him. And so he would have said, now listen, understand this, Cleopas, understand this. The Messiah who came he was the one true king. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this, what? World. If it was, my servants would fight 
But Jesus says the Messiah who came was the Prince of Peace. He didn't come to break people from their power of Rome, from the power of Rome. He came to, to free them from the power of sin and death. I was thinking about this recently. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time, and it's not even close. And if you've ever done a writing project, you know, if you ever, I remember my literature teacher in high school saying, what's it called at the beginning to grab attention? You have to start with a, a hook, right? If I was to, to mention one line, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those are the opening words to Charles Dickens' fav, you know, famous novel. Now, because the beginning is important. What's interesting about the greatest book and the most popular book ever written is how the New Testament begins. It doesn't begin with a crazy story. It doesn't begin with uh, a captivating illustration. Matthew 1 begins with a what? A genealogy. In Matthew 1, and I'll just read it for you. In Matthew 1, it says in verse 1, I mean, this is hilarious. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In your Bible reading plan, this is maybe just a, a give me day. Skip on the chapter two, give me the Magi. But in verse 17, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So there are 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And there's a theme here. Because the New Testament wants you to understand something. Listen, the man who came, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king. Here are the credentials. At Christmas, we sing, what child is this whom laid to rest upon Mary's lap is sleeping? And then we get to the chorus and we sing, this, this is Christ the king. Because the entire Old Testament points towards the coming king. Make no mistake Jesus says the Messiah was the king. Now, could anybody else ever come along and try to be the Jewish Messiah or to be the Jewish king? No, because in 70 AD, all the records that would prove his credentials through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah were burned and destroyed by the Romans. Jesus is the only savior and he is the only king. But secondly, Jesus would have looked at them and said, don't you understand that the Messiah was the better sacrifice? The sacrificial system was never finished and Jesus shows up on the scene and John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity and the punishment for our peace fell upon him. 700 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, all of us like sheep, Isaiah 53 says, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. No more lambs are needed. Maybe you're riddled by guilt. Maybe you have zero certainty of where you stand before God. Sin is always punished. And on the cross, Jesus bore the full measure of of God's wrath towards sin. At the same time, all the other Passover lambs were being slaughtered. The final lamb was put to death by those whom he had created on a tree he had made. And that's why we sing, lifted up was he to die, it was finished was his cry, now exalted in heaven high, hallelujah, what a savior. On the cross of Calvary, God preached the strongest possible sermon on the love of God. Because the love of God is not a theoretical concept. It's a demonstrated reality. 
God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there he was slaughtered, and there he was the better sacrifice. But number three, Jesus would have said the Messiah who came was not only the coming king, he's not only the greater sacrifice, but he was also the one the Old Testament prophesied regarding the empty grave. Can you turn to Acts chapter two for a moment? Acts chapter two, this is Peter's big sermon following the ascension of Jesus Christ. In verse 22 of chapter two, he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Pause real quick. Jesus' crucifixion wasn't a heavenly audible. It wasn't God's plan B. It was the plan from the beginning. This happened according to the predetermined plan of God. Jesus, yes, he was murdered, but it was God who sent him there and Jesus went willingly. It says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Pause here. Remember what David says in Psalm 1610? Well, now we'll read on in verse 27. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The critics would say David was speaking of himself and that God would literally set him up for everlasting notoriety. But Peter clarifies in verse 29, he's saying, listen, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Peter says, understand this, that David's psalm, Isaiah's prophecy, Daniel's vision points to a risen Jesus Christ. Now, I have five minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> so you see my dilemma. Um, what does the resurrection prove? Can I give you five brief things and I'll just, you can jot these down. The resurrection is the proof of scripture. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he is a delusional madman. He's not the king of glory, he's the king of lies. The scripture prophesied of a risen savior and if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you cannot trust the word of God. But if Jesus rose from the dead and says that the word of God is the inspired, authoritative, and sufficient word of God, you can bank your life on it. Number two, the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is indeed God. Jesus was validated as God by the voice of God at his baptism and the transfiguration. The voice says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He was attested by the signs he performed. The demoniac cries out, depart from me, you son, the son of God. I don't want to be near you. 
But the strongest proof of the deity of Jesus Christ was the resurrection from the dead. Romans 1 says that he was proven to be the son of God with power through the resurrection. Make no mistake, this is God. He died, he was man, and he is God. Third, the resurrection is the proof that God's wrath towards sin is totally satisfied. Now, in the garden, Jesus says in John 17, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is Jesus referring to? The cup of wrath. That's correct. So on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath and he drank it to the dregs, the Puritan used to say. Every single last drop. How do you know that there is not an ounce left of God's wrath for you if you're in Christ? Because of the resurrection. That's why 1 John says that he is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word, big word. But if you're nine years old, you need to understand it because next year you're doing math with letters in it. Okay, so you can get this. <laughs> propitiation means satisfaction. So when we say that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, it means that God's wrath was totally satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Number four, the resurrection is the proof of your righteous credit. Now listen to me. If the gospel to you is just that Jesus paid for your sin, you do not understand it in its entirety. Because if you just had your sins removed in the gospel, can you possibly go to heaven? What's the answer? A million times no, because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You need not only your sin removed, you need the righteousness of Christ given and transferred and imputed to you. And that's why it says in Romans that he was raised for our justification. You don't just need someone to pay for your sin. You need something you could never earn, buy, possess. You need something totally alien to you. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die? Why don't we just think, hey, why didn't Jesus just drop down on a Friday, die on Friday night, be back up in his heavenly throne by Sunday? Because Jesus didn't just have to die for you. He had to what? He had to live for you. He had to live the life you could never live. He had to obey God perfectly in all respects. So that now, because of the cross and because of the resurrection, on the cross, God viewed Jesus as if he had lived your sinful life. And now if you're in Christ, God views you as if you had lived the perfect, righteous, holy, blameless, sinless, spotless life of Jesus Christ. Number five. The resurrection is the guarantee of your own. John eleven twenty five. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. The resurrection is the proof and pledge of your own. Luke 24. I just want to finish the scene with you. It says, and we can read this together. In Luke 24, I think it's 28. And they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going further but they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. Next verse. We have that, Michelle. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now watch this. Next verse. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? while he was explaining the scripture to us. They just had the most masterful teacher and the master of the universe vanish from their sight. Maybe while he was breaking bread, they saw the holes in his hands and he vanished. But what's amazing is that they look left and they look right and they said, were, were, was your heart, my, 
When what? When he was explaining the scriptures to us. The greatest gift you can ever give anyone is an understanding of God's word and that it all points to one person, Jesus Christ, and their hearts burned because they realize all of scripture points to him. He is the coming king. He is the greater sacrifice, and he is the risen savior. And we're about to sing, and I just want to pray, and I want you to understand that we don't look back merely and reflect on what Jesus has done. We worship a risen savior, and we anticipate a returning savior. He's coming back. And so even as we're about to sing, we have a savior who one day, at any moment, could come back. And so the question is, do you know the Savior? The Bible's theme is Jesus Christ, and the Bible's question is, do you know him? Let me pray. God, we love you, and we're so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for your sacrifice on the cross in which you bore the full measure of our sin, and we're also thankful, Lord, that we worship a risen Savior, and because of that reality, we have a living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because of your resurrection. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.